The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. And I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. We are here to help you think beyond your plate. And helping us do that today is Susan Vaughn Groders. I met Susan at the Missouri Governor's Summit on Food Safety just a couple of months ago. And um, I was so impressed with you and your organization. Susan, you have a Master's of Public Health from the University of Massachusetts. Massachusetts, and you are a public health specialist for Safe Tables Our Priority. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Tell me something. What does STOP do or Safe Tables Our Priority? What is their mission? So um, our mission statement is that STOP or Safe Tables Our Priority is a national nonprofit public health organization dedicated to preventing illness and death from foodborne pathogens. Um, and encompassed in that mission, um, we have a few different areas that we work on. We work on advocacy, public policy, educating, outreach, and one of the biggest things is providing victim assistance. So how many people get foodborne illness every year is your best estimate? Um, these are CDC um, best estimates at the moment, and they, it's a study that was done um, a few years ago, and I know that the numbers will be changing at some point, but right now the best estimate that CDC comes up with is that 76 million people in the United States get sick from foodborne illnesses every year, and 325,000 are hospitalized, and 5,000 people die. And to sort of put that in perspective, each day that's 14 people dying from contaminated food. That we know of. That we know of. That we have the, those are the best estimates for, for um, what we think uh, the burden of foodborne illness is. And that, when you said CDC, that, that stands for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's correct. That's and correct. are they the main organization or um, public health office that collects this data? They do. Um, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, based in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, collect their information through states, so they will ask states to report data to them um, for nationally notifiable diseases. Um, and then also they have a program called FoodNet, which is uh, in 10 different states. Um, what FoodNet is is it's a foodborne disease active surveillance network, and they collect data um, to try and get a representative idea of what's going on in um, in the nation. and. It's, it's an act of surveillance because they go out actually seeking some of the data and trying to find um, not just estimates but real hard numbers on and, and trying to understand some of the trends that might exist. So that's a CDC-based uh, research arm, but it, it exists in 10 different um, sites across the country. So. Well, I think, you know, if I, if I remember back, and I know you too have a degree in food science and, and nutrition, so right. you probably recall the first and we're probably close in age, you probably recall the first big foodborne illness outbreak, and that had to do with the hamburgers at Jack in the Box restaurant. It did. That actually launched our organization. The first child to die in that outbreak, Lauren Rudolph, died when she was um, quite young, and her mother, Ronnie Austin Rudolph, um, or Ronnie Rudolph Austin, pardon me, got together with Donna Rosenbaum, who's the executive director of STOP, and they really worked very hard to get some reporting laws changed because there was an outbreak happening in California that the people in Washington, just a few states away, weren't aware of. 
And because reporting laws weren't such that you had to report even to your state health department that there were illnesses that were occurring, they didn't go across state borders. And so that Washington had no idea what was going on in California. And so after, after Lauren's death, um, stop formed, and they really wanted to change how information was being shared and how um, we could link resources across not only local county lines but also across state lines. And we're still working. <laughs> that is very interesting. I had no idea that prior to that case, we didn't have this national reporting and these national alerts. Um, you know, I after I met you, I, I went to the STOP website and I signed up to receive the action alerts. Oh, fabulous. So within the last few weeks, it seems like I've received any number of warnings, any number of alerts about how many different food products have been recalled. And I'm a little concerned that there are so many, and if I didn't sign up for this stop action alert, I'd never know it. It's, it's a problem. I think a lot of people don't know that products they might even have in their own homes may be contaminated or may be um, causing a source of illness. Right now, the way the FDA and USDA, well, this is one of the problems with food safety, is it's spread out across our government to so many different areas. But two of the major ones, the Food and Drug Administration and the United States Department of Agriculture, both have recall notices on their website. But unless a consumer knows to go to that website and look for that recall, we provide information that incorporates both of that, um, both of their information as well as information from other sources as well so that a consumer who is concerned about food safety and is concerned about contaminated food will know what products um, may potentially cause them harm. Uh, grocery stores aren't going to tell you um, on a, in a consistent manner, and so we've tried to sort of close that gap and give consumers really useful information um, in a timely manner. Okay, well, let's, let's just take a look at this one. Here's one I got on July 29th, salmonella in tea, uh -huh. salmonella in pico de, ga de gallo, and other products, listeria in smoked fish, um, and then I think I got one, uh, let's see, there was one on ground beef, a big recall on ground beef. It seems like every day there's something going on. Is our food system broken? I really believe it. I, I think there are some fixes that can be made. Our food system um, is certainly hopefully being improved. There has been some legislation that recently recently passed that hopefully will give FDA um, more authority to help protect our food supply and to, and to help improve things. But right now our food, I, it's, I don't want to be a fear monger, but I do believe in some ways that our food safety system really is broken and there are some needed improvements. Um, and that's one of the reasons that our organization exists so that people can get involved and can help and work towards those improvements. So there are, there are things that people can do at home and there are things that people can do as an organization and certainly joining with STOP and, and, you know, having the guidance of your organization to say, call your legislator about X, Y, or Z or be aware that this product has been recalled. What are some of the steps that you would recommend that, that people do specifically? Well, I think one of the things, as, as you've learned, is even just signing up for e-alerts and becoming aware, becoming involved, becoming part of the conversation of wanting our food supply to be safer. Um, most of our members have come to our organization because they have been through a devastating, um, life-changing event uh, at the hand of um, contaminated food, and they decide to share their stories in front of congressional committees. They decide to share their stories on our website. 
they decide their, to share their stories in a very public way to remind people that it's not 5,000 people a year dying. It's somebody's grandchild. It's somebody's child. It's somebody's parent. It's somebody's loved one. And I think once you have that awareness, it, it can spur you to action. So if you sign up for an e-alert and know what is out there, it's helpful. You can also do things at home um, that, that can help when, when you're barbecuing, as, as it is barbecue season right now. Um, you have to almost expect that the food that you bring into your home can be potentially contaminated. And that means treating it um, very carefully. And there are things that consumers can do in their own home to help prevent things, avoid cross-contamination. What that means is using two different utensils for raw product and cooked product. So when you're, if you're grilling chicken and you're putting chicken on the grill, whatever utensil you use to put that chicken on the grill should not be used unless it has been washed and sanitized to pull that chicken off the grill. Um, same thing goes with platters. So if you bring a platter um, of raw chicken out to your grill, make sure that you're using a different platter to bring that um, grilled product back into your home. So those, those are some things. Avoiding cross-contamination is a really important one, especially with raw meat. Um, Absolutely. And we are doing this show in time for September Food Safety Month. So these are great tips, and I imagine that people will hear these kinds of food safety recommendations in several places, but it's really good to take them home. I don't know about you, but I was so amazed when I first learned that, you know, some of these products that come into the home that are that are um, made to look like they're partially cooked, like the, the grill marks on a raw piece of food, a raw piece of meat that still needs to be cooked, or um, the breading on a, on a piece of meat that still needs to be cooked, but people sometimes think that if it's got the char marks or if it's got the breading on it that it's ready to eat? That's not often the case. It's, it's true that there are, there are practices that exist in the food industry that make it look like our food is cooked um, when, it, when it in fact isn't. So one of the things that consumers can do to protect themselves is to be aware of the food product that they have in their home and really read the labels for what it's... Um, what, what safe food handling is of that product. Using a food thermometer um, can help consumers protect themselves in their own homes. When you go out to eat, making sure that you're asking um, for the temperature um, of food to, to be at a safe temperature, um, asking that things are well done. Um, color isn't an indicator of uh, the doneness of ground beef even. There can be something called premature browning. So just um, relying on sight sometimes, as you're talking about with grill marks, isn't necessarily the safest um, way to protect yourself, actually using a food thermometer um, can help protect the consumer as well. Well, I remember somebody at the conference spoke up and said, can you believe people are still being asked in a restaurant how they want their hamburger cooked? And, and, the, and the response was, well, cook it well. That's right. That's right. You really want it well done. Um, I, I, uh, I, I think it's hard to hear some of the stories that we've heard here at Stop and to not change your practices or to not change your behaviors as a result of it. So um, I encourage people to become involved and to um, become educated and to really learn more about the food that they're eating and the food that they're consuming. Well, you know, we, we, we cook at home and we cook less than we used to, of course, so we're less familiar with safe food handling techniques. Maybe our parents didn't pass those down because maybe we were eating out more. Um, but I'll tell you, I'm really curious about the foodborne illnesses that take place outside the home, uh-huh. where you think you're going to a restaurant, you're going to have a safe meal, and a child becomes deathly ill. That's very troubling. It is troubling. It is troubling. And there, one of the um, 
one of the troubles that exist there is that each state can adopt the food code um, or not adopt the food code or can adopt certain pieces of the food code or not adopt certain pieces of the food code. So in some states, food handlers aren't required to wear gloves when handling food, and other states they are. Just simple wearing gloves can help prevent hepatitis A from causing severe illnesses in, in outbreak situations. So if you have a food handler with hepatitis A, just wearing gloves can help prevent illnesses from unknowing consumers. There's also vaccination now for hepatitis A for food handlers. So it really depends on what state you live in and what, what restaurant you're eating at and what those practices are of those restaurants that uh, can help prevent illnesses as well. So it's not just the consumer that can help protect the population or help protect themselves. It's also um, industry and restaurant industry can also put into practice safer, safer methods and safer adoptions of, of the food code and other, other, other practices. <laughs> Why don't we have a national consistent food safety law? Huh. <laughs> That's a good question. And if I had an easy answer or about four more hours, <laughs> I think we'd be able to maybe work some of that out. I think because the United States Department of Agriculture wears two hats right now. One of the hats they wear is to both promote the agricultural industry as well as protecting public health. And sometimes those are at odds with each other. Mm. Um, you, you would like to think that they're not, but sometimes they can be. They oversee all of the meat and poultry in this country. The Food and Drug Administration, which was established at a, for a different reason, oversees um, different products. And so it's that, that conundrum that we come up with when you hear about cheese pizza being regulated by the FDA, but pepperoni pizza being re- regulated by the USDA. It, there are too many um, sort of irons in the fire. There are too many organizations at, at a federal level and even at a state level that are overseeing our food supply that it's it's hard to come up with one one single food safety agency because there are so many different people working um, in food safety. It's it's not it's not a single um, entity right now. It's it's broken. Mm-hmm. It's very very many different organizations, and I think that's where part of the problem comes from. Mm-hmm. If you're just joining us, I am speaking with Susan Vaughn Groters, and she is a public health specialist for Stop Safe Tables Our Priority. Susan, so. Do you think that it would be wise to have a single agency or organization over food safety in the United States? It's a discussion that came up a few years ago, the Government Accountability Office, I believe. It was one of their recommendations. Um, I think now, with some of the laws that are changing, uh, it might not be practical. So I think with the President's uh, Food Safety Task Force, they are addressing some of the issues that that GAO report originally um, had brought up. It, it may not be the right time to establish a single food safety agency, but it's certainly something that had been in discussions in years past and may come up again. But I think right now one of the best things we can do is give more strength and give more power um, to our regulatory agencies so that they have um, better funding, um, so that they can do better testing and microbiologically based testing, not a poke and sniff, like poke and sniff method that we've heard about, um, but you know, really doing a science-based testing and allowing our federal government to sort of help us protect ourselves and giving the mandatory recall authority so that if we know a product is contaminated, allowing our federal government to really have the power to pull that product off the market. That's something that's missing right now um, with our food safety legislation, and so that's something that can certainly be improved upon. That brings up Kevin's Law, doesn't it? Kevin's Law is a little bit different. Um, That has to do with um, the USDA and plants 
that have been sort of repeat violators, and so giving the USDA more authority to close down plants. But mandatory recall authority exists both for the FDA and USDA, and some of the it doesn't exist right now. We're, we're working to get mandatory recall authority passed, um, and with the FDA, the, the HR 2749 will help in getting mandatory recall authority for the FDA, which oversees, I would say, about 80% of our food supplies, where the USDA um, oversees a very smaller percentage. Um, so giving FDA that mandatory recall authority will really help um, with that 80% of our food supply. So that's one thing that can certainly be used to improve upon our food safety system right now. Well, when we hear about these massive ground beef recalls, for example, uh, would that be a USDA-regulated Facility? That's right. Um, ground beef recalls do fall under USDA and, and more specifically FSIS, so the Food Safety and Inspection Service within the USDA. And that is um, that when they issue a recall, there are different classes of recall. If you have a ground beef recall, usually um, we hear about them because of E. coli 0157H7. And um, when you find that in a food product, it is a, there's a zero tolerance policy in our country for um, E. coli 17787 in, um, in ground beef, and so it's labeled as an adulterant. And once you're able to get a product labeled as an adulterant, you then um, have an impetus to remove it from the market. But right now, USDA can't say, you have to pull it off the market. They can say, please pull it off the market. It's not mandatory yet. I so see. we're working towards that. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, remember the spinach and lettuce incidents. Of course, those were... What, what many people may not realize is I think the last one we had was the 20th incidence. It wasn't anything really new, but there's been a movement to irradiate the bags of lettuce and spinach. Where, where do we stand on that? Stop uh, doesn't take a position on irradiation right now. Um, we certainly believe in advanced technology. We um, Pasteurization has been around for years, and it's a technology that is well well-documented scientifically to be proven. Um, some of the information that's coming out in irradiation just isn't as science-based as it can be for a stop to get on board and say, absolutely, irradiation is a wonderful technology. Let's start using it. Um, it can also, there, there are just too many questions right now um, to really think that, and other things that we can do to improve, to think that irradiation would be the answer to a food safety problem. Yeah, I, I see the irradiation personally as much more of a Band-Aid approach. And I, and I have to qualify that by saying, you know, if I was the parent of a child who died after eating spinach, of course, I would have prayed that that spinach had been irradiated. But I think, uh, you know, from a public health perspective, going back up and finding out what was the true source of the contamination and stopping the problem at the source point would make a lot more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are other fixes to the system besides just... Um Besides just irradiating food at the other end, and then until we have science-based evidence showing us that that's the best thing, I, I think there are other ways to fix the problem. I think there are much better ways to fix the problem. Well, what kinds of ways, let's say I gave you a magic wand, <laughs> and I said, Susan, you are a specialist in public health, you're an epidemiologist specifically, a, a strong background in food science, I'd say you're in a pretty good position to to say this is in an ideal world. This is what I'd like to see with regard to food safety. What are the top few things you'd like to see? I'd like to see, I think, scientific-based testing, um, and there are a few other things I think that would work: frequent inspections, um, so that I don't think there's any way that we're going to eliminate um, bacteria from um, 
food supplies. We know that, uh, like I said, E. coli 15787 has a reservoir in ruminant animals. And so knowing, knowing where these pathogens exist and knowing how to test for them and using the technology that we have and really doing frequent inspections that are based on risk is one way to help improve our food safety system. Um, I think knowing when you have those positive pathogen tests to then report them to the FDA and the USDA so that we can really protect ourselves and, and sort of knowing what's out there. I think, I think as a scientist, I, I, using, using the technology that we have to really understand what we're dealing with, I think is one of the ways to improve it. That's, that's one way. <laughs> well, let me ask you something else. Now, let's, let's put this in real, real people terms. Mm-hmm. I go out to eat and I come home and I, I'm not feeling very well. Okay. And I don't know, I, just a little stomach upset. I don't really make too much of it. Should I be reporting these things? At what point do I say to myself, I need to call somebody, and who might I call? Well, I think one of the best things that you can do is to trust yourself. So we hear a lot of times from parents with sick children Uh that they went to their pediatrician or they went to their doctor, and the doctor might even say something like the stomach flu. Well, we know there is no such thing as the stomach flu, that there is something causing that illness. So asking your doctor when you are really feeling ill and experiencing symptoms of gastroenteritis and diarrhea, vomiting, whenever you're seeing anything that's out of the ordinary, asking your doctor for a culture, asking your doctor for a lab test so that you know what you're dealing with because that also can change the way you're being treated. Certain, certain bacteria, um, we know there may be a contraindication for using antibiotics. Other times you might not be dealing with a, a bacteria and you're dealing with a virus, so a bac- using antibiotics might be inappropriate. So I think that one of the best things you can do is when you get to your physician's door, if you get to your physician's door, really letting them know to take this seriously and, and use the laboratory methods that they have available to them so we can get an idea of what's causing illness in our community. You can also self-report to your public health department. So I would encourage people to know how to get in touch with their local public health departments and even their state public health departments. There are ways to report, just self-reported illness. And if you have an idea of, of other people in your family or your friends group that have been ill as well, knowing how to report that to your public health agency is very important. So would it be appropriate to call the county health department then? It depends on what state you live in. Um, for the state of Missouri, there are local and county health departments that you can call. You can also find that information on um, the state health department's website. Um, there should be a way for you to be able to find who your local or county health department is. Most likely even your phone book would have the number for your public health agency in it. So you're either your local public health department or your county public health department, they should be able to help um, direct you in the right direction if they can't handle that complaint themselves. And it's usually, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that when a group of people eating the same food all get sick, that's a pretty good indication that we're dealing with a foodborne illness. Whereas if five people ate the same food but only one person became or started to feel ill, that probably wouldn't be related to the food. Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. There are things called sporadic illnesses. And a sporadic illness is one that occurs in a community where you don't have the attribution back to a food product because you don't have enough number of cases to know what made people ill. What we're seeing with some of these national outbreaks from the cookie dough and other things is that there's a real lag time because what appears local and sporadic 
in some states is actually linked to a much larger and more national problem. And it's, it's not until we realize that those sporadic cases are actually linked to a larger outbreak that we know that there's a problem. But certainly if, if many people in the same area all ate at the same place and they're all sick with the similar symptoms, it's a little bit easier to pinpoint that type of outbreak than it is to pinpoint a national outbreak. So call your county health department first. Yep. Um, the real danger signs, uh, bloody diarrhea, um, what other ones would be red flags to say, you know, run, don't walk to the doctor's office? I think when you have, um, when you have symptoms of severe diarrhea, you also run the risk of dehydration. So taking any, anything that's out of the ordinary seriously is, is a good first step. So bloody diarrhea, um, nausea, vomiting, um, fever, headache, even sometimes listeria can present as a flu-like illness. Mm. So taking anything that's out of the ordinary seriously and contacting your physician as well as contacting your um, health department to see if they know of any other illnesses that exist in, the, in a similar area um, is an important step that a consumer can take if they become ill themselves because you may be protecting somebody else in just making that phone call. That's a really good point. We have been talking with Susan Vaughn Groters. She is the public health specialist for STOP. Safe Tables, Our Priority. And I want to give everyone your website, Susan. It's www.safetables.org. And um, after meeting you, I went to the website, and I have just found a wealth of information. Sign up for the action alerts. You can find out what foods have been recalled, what foods have you possibly purchased that you should return to your grocery store because there may be a risk involved. Um, and also legislative action alerts so that if something happens that it requires a legislative change, uh, we can act collectively as a group to make those important national changes. Is there anything you want to end with, Susan? I think one of the things that's been helpful over the 16 years that STOP has been in existence is our 800 number. Great. We have an 800 number that you can reach anywhere toll-free. It's 1-800-350-STOP. Um, that's 1-800-350-STOP. So if you can't find the number of your local health department or if you don't know what to do if you're facing illness, we can help. We're here to help, and we have been for 16 years. Susan, thank you so very much for talking with us today. You have been listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed another informative interview by local food sleuth Melinda Himmelgarn. Now here's another uh, event that we won't, you won't want to miss this evening. It's uh, at CAT TV. Join Ian Thomas, Executive Director of PedNet, tonight at 6.30 p.m. at CAT TV Studio B as he discusses the walking school bus program which promotes exercise and active lifestyle. Opening minds for over 30 years. This is 89.5 FM, KOPN, Columbia. The Imagination Station.
This is Dr. Royda Kroos, psychologist, gerontologist with a prescription for longevity prepared by the editors of the newsletter Health After 50. Follow a healthy diet. A diet rich in fruits and vegetables may cut in half the risk of colon cancer and reduce the risk of heart disease and diabetes. It also decreases problems like diverticulosis and constipation. Eat at least five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Switching to a low-fat diet can reduce total cholesterol and produce small but significant declines in blood pressure. Reduce fat to 30% or less of total calories and keep daily cholesterol intake under 300 milligrams. This is Dr. Reuter Kroos for KOPN with your Wellness Moment.